Welcome to episode 366 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's the final judgment. It is the final judgment. But not surprisingly, this is the second episode on final judgment. So (laughs) there's a little irony there. But we're going to get back at it again, but we're going to be talking about how works fit into this whole final judgment thing. We teased that a bit in the previous episode. So there's some of that coming. And if you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what they're talking about, then you should go back to 365, give that bad boy a listen, and then come hang out with, out with us here. We'll wait for you. That's true. We, we won't actually wait for you, but you can push pause and cause us to wait for you, and it's fine. Yeah, but... While you do that and you're hitting pause, we're just going to continue forward in this timescape and do some affirming and some denying. I understand you've got the shotgun double-barreled affirmation on this episode. Is that correct? It's true. I do. One of them, people won't be surprised because I basically sneak peeked it a couple of weeks ago. So I finally got my hands on a copy of a book called Lord Jesus Christ by Daniel Trier which is the latest entry in the uh, Zondervan's new studies in dogmatics. Uh, It is super good. So I'm through the introduction and through most of the first chapter. Got to admit, this is a pretty dense book. It's slow going. So it's kind of one of those things you just bite off a little bit at a time. But he's organized it in a really, um, it's not like an innovative way, but it's a really useful way that isn't common these days. Basically, he has sort of dogmatic headings, but each dogmatic heading he's associated a specific passage with. So the first chapter is really about like the eternal relationship or the eternal relation between the father and the son. And he's grounding it in like Ephesians one. And then of course there's like the one on, there's a a chapter on like the incarnation and sort of talking through kenosis and he's grounding it in Philippians two. So he's, he's staying close to the text in terms of his structure of his work. Um, it is definitely not a, like a biblical studies book. It's not a, there's not a huge amount of exegetical work that's being done. That's just not the subject of the book, but uh, it's super good. If if you are are looking for a good Christology book and you uh, have the appetite for a, a little bit of a tough read, definitely check it out. It's called Lord Jesus Christ by Daniel Trier. Uh, it's published by Zondervan. It's been like two years since they've published a book in this series. And this is a, a much welcome restarting of this series. There you go. There's nothing like, a, again, a good book affirmation to start us off. Mine is actually like that as well. It's not in the same ilk per se, but it is a book that's reasonable and suitable and so helpful for this time of year. So we're, I don't know when you're listening to this in your life or in the calendar, but as we record this, we're approaching dangerously that end of October where <laughs> we at least celebrate in some extent the beginning of the Reformation or Reformation Day or whatever you want to call it. But uh, I'm coming back to a book that I really love called Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther by Roland Bainton. I've talked about this one before, but it's so good, really approachable. It's really kind of a lovely mix of all the theology and the biography and the studies. And it's just really, really helpful. And I always come back to one of the great quotes of this book, which is really something that's from 
Karl Barth in speaking about Luther as like a man who is stumbling up a bell tower in the dark and finding himself losing his balance as reaches out and the thing that he inadvertently grabs hold of is the rope from which the bells ring and he ends up waking up the entire village. This book is really in that vein and it's a great view of Luther that I think is realistic and filled with humanity and does not in some ways like self-aggrandize. Yeah. It doesn't really lift Luther too high up, but at the same time, I think it does appropriately put the emphasis on how God used him in a mighty way at a particular point in time in the course of history to change so many things, or at least to bring back into the light what the gospel really means and how it ought to be examined and understood and applied in life. So there's lots of great biographies of Luther. You almost can't go wrong, but if you're like, I don't even know where to start and many of them are a little bit weird or they're a million pages long. Here I stand is like a really great beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I listened to this on uh audiobook and it was very good. Uh, yeah, I did listen to this. I'm, I'm frantically checking my audible history to make sure this is actually the one that I listened to. Cause you're right. There are like a thousand Luther biographies out there. Um, but I, I agree. I think this one was really good. It's engaging. Um, one of the things that I don't think people always realize is how deeply um, interconnected uh, like the biography of a figure is with understanding their theology. Like a, a good historical theological study will take into account not only the the history of what's going on in the area, but also like a figure like Luther, you almost can't separate his personality and his particular personal history and temperament from the theology that he puts forward. Um, in a certain sense, all of our theology is conditioned and driven by our personalities. Like Calvin writes in a certain way and has certain insights because of the kind of person he is. And, and that's the same with you or me. We, we have different perspectives. We see different things. We develop things in a certain way, but almost to like the, almost to the extreme is true with Luther. So there's a lot that they go through in this, that, that um, Bainton goes through in this book that really highlights Luther as the man and how Luther as the man influences the theology and the the movement that he that kind of came after him. So yeah, I definitely agree with this recommendation. And the the um, the audiobook was really engaging. I, I found it just to be really entertaining. So if, if you don't, don't have the appetite for a long uh, Luther uh, novel, novel. What am I talking about? Like a long Luther biography. Have it's been a long day. I, we, we've recorded uh, most of the time in the afternoon, and it's like almost seven thirty, which is almost bedtime for me. Um, if you don't have the appetite for a long Luther biography, but you drive a lot or something, then the 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 audiobook is a good option, and I really enjoyed it. Or maybe if you want to write your own Luther fan fiction, you can let us know. Maybe there's <laughs> Luther a Luther novel. There's like a Luther novel out there that involves zombies or yeah, I mean, um, I think Luther so. and Pride and Prejudice or Luther and Sense and Sensibility. Actually, I'd like to read that book. What I would like to see is somebody who has some sort of mastery of German tell me what the German word for Luther and Luther fan fiction would be, because I'm sure that you could just make a single German word for Luther fan fiction. One probably already exists. Yeah, probably. It's that kind of great language. As you were saying that. All if if what um I, now I just lost his name because I'm stuck on Luther fan fiction. It just totally got into my head. If what R.C. Sproul says is correct about, of course, everybody being a theologian, then 
you're entirely right. It's difficult to abstract from who we are, where we are in the world, what we would experience. That's not to say that like that somehow overrides or gets like hegemony over the scriptures in a way that's inappropriate. It is to say, of course, though, that there's certain things that you and I speak about. We talk about like how many times we talk about EFS in our conversations and maybe there will be some day. Well, that will not be a topic of conversation, but in our day it is. And so therefore so much of our theology, so much intent we're giving to it is a product of what's going on in the world. Much more so, I'd say, with Luther, because of the massive amount of change that was occurring, both culturally, spiritually at the time, and the nature and structure of the church. So he is, I think, one that is a standout, as many of the reformers are, standout saying, if you want to understand what they were saying, it's not really just enough anymore just to quote from them, but to really try to get a sense for who they were and what they were doing and why they were writing these things, why they were standing up. So this is just another good example. So this time of year, just like a good built-in excuse to be like, it's Reformation Day. And I'm always like, yes, I will read another book about Luther because it's just a, a lovely time of year to come back to him and all the other reformers and to be reminded about how good God is to bring about his ends and his message in all of the generations of his children. So just go get both these books, right? You'll have, I, I bring this one up because I thought it's like a good compliment to the one you just recommended. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. Actually, they're really great together, I'd say. But there, there's a nice pairing where you get a little bit of something when you're tired of one, you just switch back to the other. Yeah. Just for reference, Google Translate says that if you want to say Martin Luther fan fiction in German, it is fan fiction zu Martin Luther. <laughs> Do you remember back in the day? Uh, this is this is I feel like this is dating me. But back in the day on the Reform podcast, when Tanner would do his whiny German voice. Yes. Fan fiction to Martin Luther. <laughs> sorry, I just offended all of our German listeners. Yes. Sorry, German brothers and sisters. All right, what's that's just one barrel. What is the second affirmation that you got? So uh, this may or may not surprise people about me and my musical tastes, but I'm a sucker for like a good like vocal harmony arrangement cover song. That's like a really specific category of words put together. But I, I, I feel like I've known about this band before, but I stumbled back upon their music this last week, and I'm really just enjoying going through what I can find on YouTube. It's a band called Cimarelli. Have you ever heard of this band? Yes, I have. Jesse's chuckling. I don't know if he's going to laugh at no, me no. because because I'm dumb for listening to this. Go. What was that? I didn't expect that's where we were going to go. Yeah. So Cimarelli is a band that is comprised of, depending on how long ago you look at them, um, they've been making music on YouTube for like 15 years now. Uh, It's a band that is comprised of four, five, or six, sometimes seven sisters. Uh, I'm assuming that their, their given name, last name was Cimarelli. And they have an interesting story. So it seems like just genuine, fun Um, people, um, they're Roman Catholic. Um, so there are definitely Christian influences in their, um, in their personalities and the way they carry themselves and the way they approach even, I would, I mean, I haven't talked to them, but I would assume like the way that they think about 
the purpose of making music. There are Roman Catholic influences in there, but they actually went viral early on and got signed on for like a relatively big record label in LA. They moved their family to LA. And then after like four or five years, they're like, nah, we're just, we're not going to do that. We're just done with that. They just tapped out because they just weren't interested. And so now these sisters, um, usually there's four of them. There's a fifth one and all their most recent videos say that the, the fifth sister who's usually involved is sort of stepping away because her husband is going through cancer treatments. But they make these really interesting vocal harmony arrangements. And, you know, it it's not like their music is super unique, but the way they layer their vocals is actually pretty distinctive. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of videos that will show them. Usually there's the same four sisters right now, and they'll each create like a vocal harmonization arrangement. And it's actually quite good. So, Check it out. I'm just I'm just a sucker for this kind of thing. Like the way that God has created sound where certain sounds layer. What what I guess what I would say about the way they do this, they sing in chords. So in a normal like choral arrangement, there's a chord structure, but these are like these are full phrases, full like pop songs that are sung basically in the form of chords as these four or five sisters harmonize it. And What's really cool is some of their older videos, they're actually harmonizing live. It's not, it's not pre-recorded. Um, so check it out. It, it's a lot of fun. They have good music. Um, one of their most recent songs that they put out, I think came out in May, it's called Skin. It's just a, you know, it's a song about like the fact that particularly young women, obviously that's that's mostly their target audience, I would guess, but particularly young, young women struggle with like body image issues and feeling like what's on the outside is what people are considering and and it's really like this kind of war cry anthem that really what needs to be considered is not something that's just skin. It's, it's deeper than that. So I, I, I like their music. Maybe I'm weird. Maybe this is like teenage girl music and everyone's going to laugh at me, but that's fine. That's totally fine with me. Well, first of all, you're a human being, right? I mean, that's why you like this music. Right. I actually have a theory, though, for why you like this music uh -oh. based on the way you just described it, which I would say is a hundred percent accurate. And we're going to take a quick excursus into the reformed music theory cast for uh -oh. just a second. But my theory about why you like this so much is they're actually singing in traditional hymn form. Mm -hmm. So they're singing all four parts, which for our brothers and sisters that read music, if you look at a tradition, I'm talking about traditional hymnal, not some kind of newfangled arrangement, but a traditional hymnal. What you will find is that both in the bass clef and the treble clef, you're going to find all four parts that those parts in, if you're playing on the piano in each of those hands are in harmony to begin with. And that's because for most of singing, most, a lot of singing first happened in the church. It happened in a structured way, but it happened with novices. And the best way to find out where you should sing was you would listen for your parts in the music and it would be played crisply in that chord structure. Nowadays, we've lost a lot of that. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Chris Tomlin. We've lost a lot of that <laughs> stuff. And so I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, especially oftentimes if you're singing more contemporary music, you might try to figure out, you can't figure out where exactly your voice is, where it's supposed to be. So there's just something you're right, so pleasant about chordal structures. Yeah. And so if there's eight notes in an octave, a chord is just, there's a root, so if it's a G chord or C chord, that's going to be the root. And then you just because there are eight notes, you order them up and you skip spaces. So one, three, and five is always a chord. And then you can add on top of that if there's a fourth harmony part. When people sing like that, it's very moving. Yeah. And so 
you'll hear it in music often. You'll often hear it in the piano. You'll hear it in the guitar. But when the voice does it, there's something very special about that. And most of hymns are written in this way. So a lot of traditional hymnody has that. When you hear, for instance, like a really great quartet sing hymns a cappella, it's fantastic. And you're getting all the parts and so nothing is left out. It feels rich and beautiful and deep. This is also, to my theory, why so many people, in addition to lots of other reasons, appreciate like exclusive psalmody without yeah. any accompaniment. When it's done right, usually in those churches, they have a strong and rich tradition of, again, even if they're amateur or novice vocalists, of the congregations hearing the parts and they know which parts to sing. In other words, they're all just singing the melody. They're singing all those parts together. So, yeah, yeah Cimarelli is just a really great example of really talented people yeah. doing this thing. Like, it's right in the pocket of the way God has created music to be sung yeah. and appreciated and understood. And they're using it that way. And it's really good. So you're a human being. I yeah, I think the other reason that I like this band, this is going to this is going to sound funny, but like because of the age of these uh these women um and the style of music that they like to cover, they yeah. hit a lot of the like really popular pop songs from when I was like a teen like when I was like in my early yeah. 20s. So like they have this cover that is this mix of a P Diddy song. I don't even know what P Diddy is called these days. He's had so many different types of names, but like a, a, a Puff Daddy P Diddy song mashed up with Jason Derulo and a Miley Cyrus song. And that thing just slaps. Like I listen to that on the way to work. I just crank it up and it just makes me smile because it, it's, it's like this, there's a nostalgia piece, but it's also like a fresh song. Like it's the style of it is not, they're not just singing they're not just singing what was made. They're actually putting their own unique twist on it. And they're very good at using um, musical dissonance and, and resolution to move a song along. So like, I think you're right. Like Chris, we, we bang on Chris Tomlin a lot here, but like really it's just modern pop music is like this. where like, it's one singer. Maybe there's a couple harmony parts during the chorus, but for the most part, it's one singer. And like, it's, it's just a, like a straightforward melody. When you can add dissonance, which is where the notes don't actually, they don't actually line up in an ordinary chord and they sort of clash with each other and then resolve that dissonance, there's something that it does to your brain and to your emotional state that's just really satisfying. Um, it's like if, um, you know, you and I both play guitar. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have some sort of aptitude on guitar or at least familiar with it. If you have a string that's slightly out of tune, there's something really satisfying if you play a chord and then you pull that string into the proper tuning. There's something really satisfying about that resolution. And that's what a lot of their music does. They use this they use this sort of principle of dissonance to to make you feel something different about the way the song is being sung than it probably felt originally because it was a pop song and it didn't have any sort of real complexity to it. And then they pull out that dissonance by resolving the chord back into a whole, like a whole chord or to a, a major chord. And it, it's just really satisfying. And these girls seem to have a lot of fun. I say girls there. Some of them are, are as you know, same age as me, but these women seem to have a lot of fun. They seem to really, really enjoy each other's company. Um, it's funny, some of them, like their kids will end up coming into the room when they're recording this. So like, I, there's a part of me that like resonates with them because like Augie runs in when I'm trying to record the podcast and he hops up on my lap and, it, you know, so I just think it's a fun group um, because of their Roman Catholic faith. They, they don't, 
sing songs with profanity. I mean, some of the songs have some like sexual overtones because that's just pop music, but they don't lean into that. They don't, you know, um, you're not going to, you're not going to have to like shield your eyes on their music videos because they, they just, it's just not their thing. So check it out. Cimarelli is spelled C-I-M-O-R-E-L-L-I. Um, most of their stuff is on YouTube, which you can find on Apple Music or whatnot. But I, I would say go to YouTube and watch it because they're actually a lot of fun to watch. Like even just the way that they interact with each other is really engaging. Yeah, this is a great experiment for everybody who thinks, ah, that's not my style or like, yeah, I'm not into that kind of, you just described like a weird female, like quintet or quartet yeah. there. But your point is well taken because the beauty of this. So here's the grand experiment. What they're doing is they're basically turning themselves into a guitar. So the distance that you talked about is it's like throwing a seventh or a ninth into your chord structure so that the voice, the melody is being led into the next chord so that it resolves. Right. That's really sophisticated music making. But when you hear it, you'll just be like, why does it sound so good? Like yeah. what, is, what are they doing? That's extra there. That's leading me through. That's how good music should be actually right. is to lead you along. So much of the music is like kind of just like, Zombie stuff. I, I was watching something on YouTube recently. It's a guitarist who does some videos. And often what he'll do is he'll just take like the top, I think it's top 20 worldwide songs. Yeah. And he'll talk about them or critique them, but he doesn't know what they are. He just jumps into like Spotify's rankings. And his critique these days is like so much of like pop music is just like strange beat, like two or three notes. And it's not quite like rapping and it's not quite singing. Yeah. But a lot of that's really popular and it's kind of like zombie music. It, it lacks the thing you're talking about, that richness, that dissonance of, that requires resolution that brings you and pulls you into the next melodic phrase. So they just do that. So there's something kind of like beautiful and haunting about the whole thing. And again, insert hymns, all that stuff yeah. right here. This is the last thing I'll say about this group. I will challenge anyone to look up this song. So the YouTube video is Coming Home Mashup by Cimarelli. If you look that up, uh, the screen, the thumbnail is weird because the the video, they just like display family photos of the girl who's singing. That's the whole video. But look that up. I challenge you not to smile when you're listening to this song. It's just a fun, clever arrangement of this song. So check it out. Cimarelli. Um, I'm not being paid by them. I don't get any residuals, but like this video has 1.8 million views. So it's not like they're a small thing. And they, this is what I think is so charming about this group. This is a family. It's like a family band, right? This is a family who got a major record deal. This is everything that they thought they wanted, right? Everything they thought they wanted was this professional record deal. They wanted to professionally make music. And honestly, they're good, but like, they're not, um, they're very good at what they do, but they're not the kind of singers that make it big in like, like pop music. They're just not that. That's not that. I don't know what to say, how to say it, but like, they're not the kind of people and the kind of singers and the kind of women that really make it big in that, that arena. So they gave it all up because they didn't, they just didn't find it rewarding. Like it, it was, they were burning out. They just weren't into it. They probably are reaching more of an audience and have more impressions on their music now than they ever would have as like a legit recording artist uh, with like a record label. And they're having fun doing it. They're spending time with their family. I mean, it's, it's just really, it's very winsome content and musically it's very, very engaging. So check out their, check out their video coming home mashup by Cimarelli. I dare you not to smile and not to not to tap your feet when you're listening to this song. I love that. That's fantastic. I'm going to pivot because I had 
a second affirmation in mind, but now I'm just going to like come alongside yours and do something that's similar, but slightly different. Speaking of great music and this kind of <laughs> style, or so to speak, have you ever heard of the group Brothers in Grace or I B.I.G.? Don't know that I have. I'm guessing you wouldn't because it's my father-in-law, Southern Gospel Court. Well, then I obviously have, and I'm just not remembering it. <laughs> I thought that's what you were talking about, but I was like, he couldn't be asking me this. Yeah, so my father-in-law is in a Southern Gospel Quartet, has been for like many, many years. And it's definitely legit in this part of the world. They they do a little bit of touring. They sing out constantly. They have several albums. So I'm just going to say, if you want another group that's slightly the same, but also very different, then just go to brothersandgrace.com. <laughs> I don't think you can find them on streaming It's uh, platforms because that's not really their jam. But if you wanted to get connected with their music, I can help you do that. So you can reach out at info from brotherhood.com. But the reason why I recommend them is by any standard, they are fantastic vocalists. In fact, one of the many things, Southern Gospel, and this is like, listen, loved ones, this is like the legit Southern Gospel style. Like, I like I, I don't even know how I would like replicate that with my voice right now, but if you know, then you know. One of the things though, though that's not my style that I, I love all the time, that I really appreciate is they do on every album and often in their concerts to do a whole period where it's just uh, traditional hymns, a cappella. Nice. It is breathtaking. Honestly, it's so worshipful. Fantastic. Again, we're talking about those those four-part harmonies. So if you're wanting to get closer to the Reformed Brotherhood, I, I suppose they're like the maybe official Southern Gospel Quartet of the Reformed <laughs> Brotherhood. I don't really know what the connection is, but I know my father-in-law always asks about the podcast, and we at least once a year go out to see them sing. And they've opened it like for some, again, Forgive me, loved ones, because for those of you that like enjoy Southern gospel music, I'm just going to butcher this. I can't remember. There's They've opened for some pretty famous people as they've toured. My goodness. One of them is something like something seven, Legacy 7. Legacy 7. I think that's Family think that's Force 5. Again, I'm out of <laughs> Five Iron Frenzy. Five. They've opened for Five Iron Frenzy. No, no, no. Am I dating myself although, pretty bad right now? No, no, no. Not at all. Although I would I would see both of their shows. Five for Fighting? to get me uh, backstage passes there. I think it was Legacy 7 uh, is the group. And that was an amazing show. So all I'd say, they're very talented. I'm very blessed that I married into a family that uh, enjoys music in this way. And uh, like they're hilarious in their own right. Every concert, they do this thing where they enter in like in like an interlude. They do like a bunch of really bad dad jokes. Like they go back and forth <laughs> uh, telling the, and they're all like the dad jokes about, you know, like, uh, like, you know, like what I think these are all apocryphal, right? Like signs you might see at churches that are just like hilarious misspellings and bulletins, something like that. Like, yeah, you know, I can't even think of any of them right now, but people love them. And here's what I've learned. Last thing I'll say is there's music for everybody and it, it ministers to somebody. So people come and th these are really worshipful concerts, honestly, no matter what your style of music is, especially when you get to the hymns. And then I've been to several of these all over this, the state in which we live. And there's always like, they have groupies, like they're little old lady groupies that like want to hang out with them, come up with them at the table afterwards. Like <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. Their website though, I think was made in like 1998. On like, G is it a GeoCities website? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's probably close, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's definitely a GeoCities website. Yeah. 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 Nice. But you can see. It's it's all invested in the music and yeah, they got a bunch of albums. So I'm sure you can find them 
Uh, I know there's YouTubes of them, uh, YouTube videos, YouTubes. There, are, YouTube. there is YouTube videos of them out there, but there you go. All right. So I think everybody got it all. I mean, we've got books, we've got music, and now it's the final judgment. Enter, we didn't get it done this week. Enter that remix of the final countdown That's right true. here. Instead, yes, well done. But instead, final judgment. And we teased this idea of talking about or having some more conversation around what it means. And we say like that the final judgment does involve in some ways, I'll say it this way, like our works component. You know, yeah. we've, I think we've been that spoken at this point, all the dead, whoever you are, powerful or poor, you know, in high status or low stand before God's throne to be assessed by him. We talked about this last week. The books are opened, including the book of life, meaning that the time of judgment is at hand. The dead are judged by what is written in the book. That is according to their works and scripture repeatedly says that judgment will be according to works. That judgment according to works is not merely like an Old Testament theme. We see it in the New Testament. In some ways, like this is all of the Reformation as well. This tension or this bicycle where there's one pedal faith, the other pedal is works. And so we're riding this bicycle even into the eschaton. And so it's time to talk about this final judgment, this final judgment and the portion that is, or not even the portion, but this understanding of how works play into this final judgment, that's where it is up for conversation here because go back to the last one if you want to hear more about how we set all that up. But now it's time to understand why does the Bible keep making this theme very clear and is it at odds with what Paul says elsewhere in Romans? Yeah. How is it that we're to understand this, especially when it comes to the final judgment? Yeah, so last week we spent most of the time sort of talking about um the fact that there are these two as like two aspects of judgment. And the, the first aspect is sort of the idea of the almost like the destination of a person. And what we what we looked at in passages like um Re, uh, Revelation 20 and Matthew 25 is that there there seems to be a distinction between the judgment in reference to a person's eternal destination. And then this other sort of judgment that somehow, somehow, and, and this was where I struggle, but somehow is related to the subjective experience of a person when they reach that destination. So kind of crassly, like, you know, we think of like someone might have a bigger mansion in heaven. Like that's kind of old. That's language comes from like the King James version. Like Christ goes to prepare a mansion for us. Right. Some people think of like, well, if you're, if you're especially righteous in this life, if you accumulate an especially high number of good works, then you may have a larger mansion or a more pleasant experience. And con conversely, if you're especially bad, especially wicked, then hell might be a little hotter for you or might be a little bit more displeasurable for you. And I, I admit, I don't really fully understand how to, how to grapple with that. And so we kind of kind of leave behind the idea of the eternal destination element of that. Although I think it's important for us to talk about and just maybe to, to, to sort of briefly comment on it. What the Bible teaches about our eternal destination and the judgment related to that, right? So there is a judgment related to that, and we have to understand that. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism um, question, let's see, question 38 says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? It says, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And so what we have to recognize about the death sort of destination judgment, if we want to call that the book of life, as opposed to the books, what we were kind of framing as the books of like the moral quality of a person. 
the judgment that is related to the eternal destiny has already been proclaimed on us, right? So, so it's, it's, there's an event at the end of days, there's an event at the end of time in which the verdict of our eternal destiny is proclaimed, but that verdict is already applied to us. And it was a verdict that was decided uh, in eternity past when we were elected in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's a verdict that was applied to us uh, or was obtained for us. And the guilty verdict was applied to Christ on the cross. So just like our guilty verdict, right? There's a judgment scene in the last days and Christ or God looks at us and says guilty because we are, but that, that guilty verdict is copy and pasted onto Christ on the cross. And likewise, God looks at Christ on the last day and says, righteous, innocent, not guilty. That is copy and pasted onto us when we believe. So that verdict is like a, it's a foregone conclusion. So although the the confessional language and the Bible teaches that that verdict is pronounced, we are openly acknowledged and acquitted. God is not making a decision at that point in time. There's no assessment at that time. It's already decided. It's already applied. It's simply just rereading the verdict. This is where, and I kind of alluded to this last week, this is where John Piper gets into trouble, right? So John Piper has been a major influence in the, the young, restless, reformed world. A lot of people who either are still in sort of the reformed-ish world, sort of like the leaky dispensationalist John MacArthur, John Piper reformed world, or people who have moved to more of a confessional uh, reformed theology, a lot of us owe John Piper a great debt of gratitude for being one of the voices that introduced us to the doctrines of grace. And then the doctrines of grace have have led us, I think, led us into a more fully ro- robust uh, theology, confessional theology. But all of that to say, John Piper has some very serious problems, and John MacArthur actually shares a lot of the same problems to lesser extents. John Piper has a lot of problems with his soteriology, specifically because he blends and blurs these things together. And I won't get into all the details of that because it, it, there are better resources. You can look up on um, our Scott Clark's website, our good friend Reginald Scott Clark. If you look up on his website, he has lots and lots of resources on this. But what Piper does is he takes this um, judgment of works, the judgment of our works, and whatever the the subjective experience that we're going to have, he takes that and he collapses that with this open acknowledgement and acquittal, such that the acknowledgement and acquittal becomes dependent on our works, which is not at all what the Reformation fought for. It's not at all what the Bible teaches. It's not at all what confessional theology holds. But he has this position where, even though he's a predestinarian, uh, and he would argue that all of this is determined by God, it's obtained by God, it's it's procured by God, it's applied by God. It's still our works that form the basis in John Piper's theology for God to acquit us. So we have to nip, we have to nip that in the bud because that that ends up being a big problem. So before we talk about judgment according to works and what that may or may not mean in Reformed theology and in in biblical theology, we have to sort of separate that. What we, whatever it may sound like we're saying, and this is the place where it's very easy to get, to, to wander off in ways of speaking that actually are very problematic. Whatever it may sound like we're saying, we utterly, absolutely deny that our final destination 
and and the status of our souls as either saved or unsaved, we utterly deny that that is in any way based on or dependent on our works or merit. And that's where I think John Piper gets into trouble is he, I don't think he would be able to actually say that, that the final verdict that is read on our day of judgment in reference to our status as guilty or not guilty, John Piper would not be able to say that it is, that that is in no way grounded on our performance and our righteousness. He explicitly says it is. So we have to get that clear because this is, like I said, this is an area, a topic where like we can really, really go off the rails if we're not careful. I think that's helpful for everybody listening and for us as we chat. This idea that whatever we're about to say, and this is not an excuse, I'm not trying to hedge, we don't mean that thing. Right. (laughs) Because it's going to be tricky to talk about. And as you've already alluded to, there's a bit of a mystery in it. But at the end, in the final analysis, Actually, that sounded like a really horrible pun since we're talking about the eschaton, the final judgment, but I didn't mean it that way. We're going to actually go back to Martin Luther and the transformative way in which the first book of Romans, first chapter of Romans, rather, there's only one book of Romans. The first chapter of Romans had such an impact on his understanding of righteousness. Yeah. We're going with and we're securely fastened to and weighted down by Romans 1, 16 and following. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we are talking, we're presuming right away, this alien, otherworldly righteousness that is imputed to us by Christ's death on the cross, which then secures the eternal destiny. And yet at the same time, like that's full stop. I should stop there for a second, full stop. And yet at the same time, the Bible is clear and explicit, not just implicit, that their works have a part. Works play some role, not right. in that thing, but in the thing somehow, in some way. So I think that's where we can we can at least confess that this is mysterious. It's a lovely, actually, in the way that there is something here that affirms at the same time that all of our righteousness is not because we've accomplished something, nor will we be judged and somehow proclaimed righteous because of those works. Right. So in some ways, this is the same debate that's been going on throughout the scriptures, throughout all of time about works and righteousness, faith and righteousness. And as I think it pertains to judgment, the judgment according to works is consistent. At least it's brought up in these terms. And if we go back to what we were talking about last week, looking in Romans, uh, Romans, man, Revelation 20, those who are in the book of life have performed works warranting inclusion, while those who are punished are those who have pursued and practiced evil. So we can say that. like that. That's like a, right. sta- just a statement. It's a fact. However, such works are not the basis for being found in the book of life, but right. they constitute like the necessary evidence of belonging to God. That's the theme that we see repeated throughout the scriptures. Now, I think sometimes in our temporal thinking, we get stuck in like a chicken or egg kind of situation on that bad boy where we need to entrust ourselves by yielding and submitting to the scriptures that God does all the verbs. And yet the outworking of those verbs in our life will produce works to such a degree that they constitute some kind of evidence confirming, but again, not in any way, even supporting what God has done because he needs no support to do the things. So none of the powers in this world, those things that like terrify human beings can withstand the voice of God or his power. So 
if you go back and look at those chapters in Revelation, I wish we had time to read through all of them. They're just so beautiful and, and glowing with like power and authority of God. But what you'll find is like sea, death, Hades, all of them yield up their dead. So God calls everybody out in this final judgment. The sea here is not this neutral entity, but it represents the chaos and destruction, which explains, of course, its absence of new creation. That's a whole other thing. At least it's it, it's representative uh, effect in the new creation. And there in Revelation 21, John reiterates that the dead are judged according to works. That's just what he says. And God's judgment is is impartial and fair. It's not arbitrary or spiteful. It accords with what is right and true. So even there, we have us push back into the fact of what God does is right and true. And what God says is that he does all the verbs, that he saves the soul, that he comes in and rests the heart, that he does all of the works of salvation. Then we ought to also understand that when he's judging by works here, that in the same way, it is not to say that you must do a certain amount of good things or certain kind of good things. And therefore that is somehow going to weigh yourself, like you're being held in the scales in the balance on that final day, and that your judgment, your destiny will in some way be subsequent to or results of whatever that scale reads or whatever yeah. it says. It's just, it's just not true. But works are involved. They're just involved. Yeah. And I think that's where it gets to be really, um, again, just being like really level transparent here is this is where I struggle so much with this theology because we, for so long in the young reform restless movement, right? And I, I don't know that I was ever like really at home in that movement, but I was part of that movement. I was, I was involved in, in that sort of milieu of thought. For so long, we, we struggle and struggle and struggle to understand and to embrace. And I think on restless, um, restless podcast, they've made this point is that one of the major issues in the young restless reform movement is they've made everything about justification. And so it's all about justification. And so it's all about justification by faith alone, which is, is good and fine and well, and, and amen, hallelujah. Justification is by faith alone. And you and I have been pretty clear on the show that sanctification is also by faith alone, but it's not faith that is alone. And justification is also not faith that is alone, but there's a particular role and a particular way that that works plays into sanctification, not in a causative sense, not in a meritorious sense. Our good works do not cause us to become more sanctified. They are the outcome of our sanctification. Exactly. And so there's a role that good works play in sanctification. There is some mysterious way, and this is going to sound super Lutheran, there's some mysterious way that we can inhibit our sanctification, right? So we we can get in the way of our own sanctification. So it's not synergistic in that we contribute to our sanctification, but it may be sort of synergistic in that we we can slow it down or get in the way of it. And I think... I think maybe I'm coming to an epiphany here. I think our glorification is probably in that same arena. And that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about the glorification of God's saints and glorification is not just, it is this, but it's not just this. It's not just the ontological transformation of our being in, in the end days, right? Believers being raised up in glory will be openly acquitted and acknowledged. Like we're raised up in glory. There's something ontological that has to do with our being that happens in the resurrection and in the final judgment. We're made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. That's a change in our being. 
the way that our beings are now, we couldn't be fully blessed. We can't be fully blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. There's something in glorification that shares with sanctification in that our works are involved, but not causing any of that. Right, and this exactly. is where I, I I can't go further than that. And I, I'm very hesitant to go further than that. I agree. Because I know how dangerous it is when we go further than that. And maybe that's the answer to this. Maybe this is like the shut up and don't talk about it podcast. Because we we almost can't speak of these things without veering into and collapsing problem like problematically collapsing this into questions about justification. Because it's not as though we like to like slice up salvation in these nice, neat little slices. Like there's justification that's like hermetically sealed off from sanctification and glorification. Those are logical constructs that we have to have in order to even talk about this stuff. But in the the reality of things is that although our justification is absolutely distinct from our sanctification, our ability to really think about them as as truly distinct categories is limited. So I'm hesitant to even try to push push further into this question because I think and this is again this is where I think not to not to just like keep coming back on this like it's a bad penny this is where I think people like John Piper and John MacArthur get into trouble is that they don't necessarily stop where they need to and so they're trying to they're to, to their credit they're trying to be faithful to what the Bible has to say about these matters but there are reasons of um, tradition that that limit the way that they're able to talk about these. I think both John MacArthur and John Piper would on certain levels be classified as biblicists in that they they insist on using biblical words and phrases in, instead of recognizing that sometimes we need to go beyond biblical phrases, never beyond biblical concepts, but beyond biblical phrases in order to explain something properly. And I think because of that, they they do they so like let's put it this way: there are places in the scripture that are talking about what we mean when we say justification, but they're using language similar to what we mean when we're talking about sanctification. This actually is a really common thing when you study the Reformation. In like Re- Reformation theology, John Calvin, Martin Luther to an extent, the people immediately following them. When they talk about regeneration, they're actually talking about something that's more similar to what we talk about when we talk about sanctification. So sometimes it actually looks like regeneration happens after justification in their theology. That's not the case because they're talking about sanctification, but they're using language related to that, that's related to the concept of regeneration. A similar thing happens with Piper and MacArthur because the Bible sometimes talks about categories related to justification but uses language that we would use in reference to sanctification and vice versa. And so what happens with biblicists like John MacArthur and and John Piper and a whole other host of biblicists in this area is they start to inadvertently blend these lines. And that's where we have to be so careful. And that's why I'm like really struggling with how do we even talk about and articulate this? And I'm actually starting to think maybe it's better that we just, we leave out there that, the Bible teaches works are somehow involved in this, right. but absolutely not in a way that is related to our legal standing before God. And I'm not 100% sure we can go further than that. You know, there are passages like, um, there's a passage in Matthew, I don't remember the, the verse off the top of my head. I, I 
think that it's probably somewhere in the in the earlier part, maybe Matthew nine or ten. But there's a passage that talks about like the person who receives a prophet uh, in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward, right? Or the person who receives a righteous man receives a righteous man's reward. And there's all sorts of these passages that really, really, it's not that they seem to indicate, but they explicitly state that there are these varieties of rewards that we can anticipate. I don't know that we can peer much further into it than what the Bible teaches on the face of it. And when we do, I think we start to get in trouble. Either we start to deny, we overly systematize the scripture and we start to deny things that the scripture blatantly teaches in favor of our systematic categories, right? Well, there's there's the only reward of salvation is that we get Christ and you can never have more or less of Christ. And so all this language about rewards, it can't really mean that. Well, when you start to say that the Bible can't really mean what it seems to apparently say, that's where we run into problems. And of course, we want to understand the Bible literally according to the certain styles in which it is writing and communicating to us. So that's wholly appropriate. I think you're right. That's where there's a temptation. We want to deal with this, so to speak. We want to understand and study it. And yet sometimes, like you said, the best thing we can do, I think, is sit in the midst of that mystery and understand that these things are contrarieties. They're held. They're not conflicting with one another. They're held in a beautiful tension. There's harmony there. And sometimes, like you said, it's helpful to know it can't mean this. So there's great comfort in knowing it can't mean that somehow we're impacting impacting our final destiny or judgment right. by the works that we do now. But it should also leave us maybe slightly discontented or dis- uncomfortable to know that there is something about the Christian life is always outworking. And so, uh, man, I didn't mean to say it that way, but that sounds like a weird pun as well. Like <laughs> it's, it's, you know, not like the Christian life is like working for the weekend. I mean, like it's, it's out there doing the work of a transformed life that is Christian in its nature. And that by virtue of that happening, then they both, one is obviously being saved and being justified is way more important than the works itself, at least as we're trying to present it here, I think, but that we're saying that they're both important and that one in some ways not strengthens the other, but does provide some kind of confirmation again, some kind of evidence. And less, I think we come to the place where we think, we like you and I are blowing this up too much, like making too big a deal about this. I think we actually see this all over the scriptures, especially in all of the epistles, and that's become normative. But there's things in there that I still read in the epistles that I find like shocking that Paul writes, and he just states as a matter of fact. And this falls right within the scope of what we're talking about. Here's just one example. So that in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, this is First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse fourteen. You're going to hear a bunch of things that sound like work. You're going to see a bunch of things they're saying, like, essentially, like everything you just said, somehow there are outworkings to this transformed life. They should be evident, visible, pursued, and volitional in some way. So he writes to the church and says, beginning in verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So to me, that sounds like, you know, a lot of like, here's some things that you really ought to be doing. And yeah. God's will for you is, in fact, to do these things. Now, here's to your point is where it gets like, for me, uh, a little wild. That's all great. I think we'd all be like, yeah, Paul and Paul, like, 
I get that. And I know that you're not saying like we're going to be judged on those things, but also that we ought to do those things. And perhaps these are some of the works that we might be talking about in the scope of this conversation. And then here's verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from evil from every type and form. So that verse 19, like we're saying, what, and we could talk about this and sometime we will, but on the face, it sounds wild, right? Do not quench the spirit. Now, a good reformed person would be like, if you heard this, like, and you thought it was extra biblical, you'd be like, yeah, that's extra biblical. You can't quench this. The spirit <laughs> does what the spirit wants. Yeah. He is powerful. He comes in. He has an agenda. He arrests the heart. He changes people. He is the one that drives all things. So the fact that he can be in some way, at least as Paul is writing here, quenched is to your point, both positive and negative, that there are things that we do begin hedging over God and over his grand arc and plan of salvation. But they are part and parcel of something. Can we just say it that way? Yeah. And so that mystery is something we said. So we have to take Paul seriously here in his words that we ought to be about these things at the same time knowing that we aren't those things. That doing those things doesn't change how God feels about us. It's the same way that like, Christians sometimes get caught up in this idea of like, well, I've had a particularly like quote unquote good day. I've yeah. done my devotions, spent extra time in prayer. Somehow like God is more ingratiated for me. It's so easy to think that way. I think that way. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant fight to say, no, 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 no. Those things. And, it, and one could argue like if you ever get into your mind, if you've compromised the intent behind these things, then if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm doing so well. So look at these great works. Like, I mean, and I know God saves me, but like this has to count for something. We've totally invalidated the gospel right yeah. there. So we have to just come to this mystery of knowing that even I think all these good works, presumably when we cast our crowns before Christ, maybe some of that will be wrapped up in these works where we'll say, Lord, you did it all. You saved me. You were the one that allowed me, that gave me the, literally the energy and the focus to keep praying continually. You were the one that allowed me not to repay evil for evil. You were the one that allowed me to be patient with people, to help the faint hearted, to come alongside and support the weak, to be the kind of person that doesn't quench your Holy Spirit. You did all these things. Maybe yeah. that's what it'll be like in the end. I, I presume it will be. Yeah. But it certainly doesn't mean that by these things, you know, coming alongside and obeying perfectly here, all of what uh, Paul talks about that we somehow have participated and contributed to our salvation anyway. The last thing I'll say is I think one of the scandalous things about Jesus when he's talking about all of this is that he reminds us that we get twisted a lot of time what we think about. I think this is what you're saying. Like we get twisted, even our understanding of like, we hear the word work and our mind just goes to one particular place on that. Yeah. And we get caught in this like quicksand of language and meaning and thinking that's not biblical at all. It's the same way in which he challenges like the Pharisees. The Pharisees think like there's two types of people, disobedient and obedient. And the obedient ones are going to, on the final day of judgment, receive from God everything they ought to because they were obedient. Instead, when Jesus comes, he says, there are two types of people, but here's where they are. It's those who realize that they are disobedient and those who refuse to acknowledge that they are, even while they try to be obedient. Yeah. And so I think here is the same thing. We can get caught up in these categories that aren't particularly helpful. And it's just to rest and to pray and say, Lord, reveal to me, I want to do the work, the will that is your will for me in the way that Paul is arguing for it here but I want to do it in a way that's not tied up in the sense that I'm somehow in any way like earning your pleasure or your reward or extra rewards. Just knowing that all of that we vouchsafe to God and it's hard enough in this life to be 
the kind of person that's seeking after the kingdom. And again, presumably all those things will follow after if we, yeah. if we do that very thing. Yeah. But I'm with you. It's a mystery. We don't often sometimes settle in the mystery camp. You know, like we, we you and I yeah. always want to unpack stuff. And at least we'll say like, yeah, it's mysterious, but it's like, it's like 90% unpacked. We'll leave you with yeah. the other 10. Just kind of, <laughs> this is like really the other way around. Yeah. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that. It's just, we, we really need to be the people that recognize and yield and submit ourselves to God in this particular area. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of a different context, but I've, I've been listening to um, Derek Thomas, his church put out um, a series of lectures that's called School of Theology, if you look it up on Sermon Audio. And I don't remember which uh, which particular lecture it was, but it was a theolog- something in the, the theology proper sequence. And he, he made a comment about something he, he used phrasing like eternal generation or something in that area of theology. And he basically said, he said the phrase and he said, I can't tell you what that means, but this is the language that the Bible and right. the tradition has given us. And I think there are times, and I, I, I'm becoming more and more convinced that this is this is where we land or where we have to land. There are times where all we can say, all we can do is to repeat the the actual biblical language and have to have to sort of acknowledge that we're not fully competent to uh, to know exactly what that is that we're confessing. And this is where faith and trust and not not like a blind faith, right? It's not it's not an I don't know and so I'm going to punt to mystery kind of faith. It's a God has revealed something to us that is far beyond us. It's far beyond our our capacity and our competence to understand and know this. Like, you know, there's I'm sure it comes up in every sector, but there's something that we say a lot in in medicine sectors. That's outside of my scope. It's outside of my scope or practice or that's above my pay grade, right? These are things that are outside of the human scope of practice and they're outside of the human pay grade to fully understand and unpack what it means because we are going to trip ourselves up if we try to really get granular and specific about what these things mean in relation to each other. And the to, to be fair, like the Bible doesn't clearly connect these two things. Like there's no there's no passage that explains the interplay or lack of interplay between our justification and our judgment of destiny versus our our destination versus our judgment of experience. If we want to like break it up into those, there's no passage that resolves that for us and clearly explains that. So we have to, we have to be willing at times to say, there's no passage that explains that. And so I'm going to have to leave that to Jesus and, and maybe he'll explain it to us someday and maybe he won't. And that's, that's where the trust comes in is I can affirm that there is a judgment according to works. I can affirm that uh, every man will be rewarded according to his works, that the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. I can affirm that that is the case. I can't really talk about how that is the case, especially if I'm trying to talk about how that is a case. And also at the same time, our works are not relevant in terms of our justification. Right. I, I can't do that. And the more we try to do that, the more we run into problems, I think. And that's where, again, I think we need to just be able to at certain times and at certain places in our systems and, and bodies of theology, we need to be able to sit back and go, yeah, that's that's outside of my scope. That's beyond my pay scale. I, I, that's not something that I can speak into. I have no experience and no ability to speak into that. 
So I don't know that there's much more that we can say. It seems like we've spent a lot of time just saying just saying things that mean we can't talk about this. So I don't know that it makes sense for us to continue just to say we we can't talk about this. But I do want to say thank you to everyone who supports the podcast. We do have a number of people that uh, have stepped up and have chipped in financially to make sure that we're able to bring this podcast to you each week. Uh, we're able to do it with decent sounding equipment and we're able to do it with download speeds that are decent. Uh, we have a website that uh, hosts all of our our podcast episodes and, and a merch store. All of that is driven by and largely is supported by these group of people who have contributed on Patreon. So thank you so much to anyone who's contributed to the show. If that's something you're interested in doing, if this is something that's beneficial to you and you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. Uh, we don't have tiers. We don't have special access perks or ad free shows or anything fun like that. Um, we've committed that this show will always be free. There will never be a paywall. But the reason that we can do that is because there are people who with no direct benefit to themselves, right? They could have taken the show for free, but they've decided to jump on and be part of the team. So if that's something you'd be interested to in doing as well. You can go to reform brotherhood. Uh, sorry, you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood and you can join in for any amount uh, is helpful. But there we go. I think that's it. That's the definitive episode on the mystery of the judgment <laughs> it's true. of works, which like I said, maybe we don't come back to this place enough that it's nice sometimes to sit back and be reminded that God is big. He's like, he just cannot be contended with. His thoughts are legitimately and literally so much higher than our own. And we're never going to find the margins of him. And so he's otherworldly. He's untamed. And so because of that, we ought to expect that not everything is tied up for us in a neat little bow. And even if it could be, our minds would just literally explode. So I think your metaphor of medicine is a good one. That's a good one to leave with. Several years ago, my wife was going through some very serious health procedures. This theme to me kept coming up over and over again. And it was, I felt that medicine was 50%, like straight down the middle, two things. On the one hand, it was I cannot believe that we can do this stuff. This is so amazing and incredible. And then the other hand, it was equally, I cannot believe you can't tell me what's going on, that yeah. you don't know anything about this. And sometimes it was the same thing. Does that yeah. make sense? And mm -hmm. so I think that's what we find here. God is big, he is powerful, but because he is good and loving and kind, that he is so patient with us, that he has this hesed towards us, we know that he can be trusted with this. He's he's big enough to be trusted with all these things. And including like matters of like the eschaton, eternal destiny, final judgment. We have a loving savior. So it pushes it should push us back into scriptures, should push us back into our lives to do some evaluating. Maybe that's where we should be at loved ones with this. And then to move forward trusting God and doing that work, but also trusting in that justification. Yeah. Yep. Well, Jesse. I think that just about wraps it up. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brother. I'm back where I belong. I never felt so strong. Yeah. Feeling like there's nothing I can't try. So throw your hands up. Uh.